Good morning. All things new is the great Christian hope. Um, every time I hear that phrase, it just makes me uh, long in a way that I don't normally. Um, I lost my dad six years ago, and I don't think I'd really longed for the return of Christ until I lost him. But there's something about that kind of pain that it kind of throws things into perspective. And, you know, I have all these things that I want to do, like I'd like to go to Europe with Brandy someday, and I want to see my kids grow up and things like that. There's something about just thinking, seeing the brokenness and the hurt and heartache and and the suffering and thinking there's a day that it's all going to end, that Jesus is going to come back and make all things new and wipe the tears from our eyes. That's the great Christian hope. Um, so I'm glad we got to hear that song as a reminder. So uh, we're continuing on in our study of the gospel of Mark. And if you were here last week, then you heard Pete preach on uh, Jesus preaching parables by the sea. And he was using stories to tell people what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, he began one parable by saying the kingdom of God is as if. And he began another one by saying, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? So it's clear that the kingdom of God is the focus. But now in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus is showing his disciples, not in stories, but in tangible ways, that this is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is going to calm a storm and he's going to cast demons out of someone. And it's all pointing to the same reality that the kingdom of God is at hand and the king of this kingdom is no other than Jesus Christ himself. So let's pray and we'll dive in. <clears throat> God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to live in a country where we can assemble and worship you and publicly read your word without fear of persecution. I pray that just as Jesus, you revealed yourself more to the disciples through these two stories, I pray that you would reveal yourself more to each one of us here this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I'm going to start by telling you a story, which is probably no big shock because I do that literally every time. Uh, but this one is not a self-deprecating, silly story about me. It's a story about my friend Brandon. Um, Brandon was one of the original members of my band, Cool Hand Luke. He was a bass player. And uh, I met the guys in Cool Hand Luke in college. I went to Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And so this story, I wasn't there for it. I've only heard the story. But this was before we were in college, but Brandon lived in Murfreesboro, and he was on campus at MTSU one day skating, skateboarding. Um, and it was almost like a scene from a movie because he's just there minding his own business, kind of like, you know, the outcast kid skateboarding. And then a bunch of, like, jerk jocks kind of walk up. And they're standing at a distance, just like heckling him and calling him names and making fun of him. And he's just like trying to ignore it, just do his thing, thinking they're going to pass on eventually. But then if you've ever skateboarded seriously, 
um, not just for transportation, then you know, in order to learn a trick, you're probably gonna fall off sooner or later. So he ate it really hard, Brandon did, and these guys just lost it and just started like calling him names, hurling insults at him. And he got up, and I'm not saying this is what he should have done, but he presented one of his fingers to them. And uh, they found this particular finger very offensive. And so it, it moved from their insulting Brandon to now they are feeling insulted by Brandon. And so they like kind of come toward him. And, and it's like, if you're watching it, you're like, oh man, this is not gonna be good. So he, he's like, guys, I don't want any trouble. Just leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. And then he said something weird. He said, you don't want to do this. Now, uh, I have a picture of Coy and Luke from the early days. So Brandon is the, the guy in the middle there. This picture is from 2002. So if you picture him about four years younger, a little scrappy teenager, no facial hair, he was a scrawny little dude. And no one would think he was a tough guy, right? So here's a rhetorical question for you. By looking at this photo, if you didn't know anything about these three guys, could you tell just by looking at it which one of them is a black belt in Taekwondo? <laughs> you can't tell, can you? Neither could those jock dudes. Um, so everything was fine, and then he said one of them picked his board up and hurled it, and he said, something in me just snapped. And I won't go into all the details, but I'll just tell you that Brandon's skateboard made it out way better than the guy who threw Brandon's skateboard. And Brandon made it out without a scratch. And when he told me my story, that's when he became my hero. Um, but my point in telling you this, this story is this, not that you should go pick fights with people. You should probably turn the other cheek. But... Um, <clears throat> These guys didn't know who they were dealing with when they engaged with Brandon. And in the same way, that's kind of the point that Mark keeps making in his gospel, that when people engage with Jesus, they just don't realize who they're dealing with. They have no idea what he's capable of. And today, Jesus' disciples are gonna see Jesus' power and authority on full display. So uh, there's basically two stories, and we're going to read them one at a time. So if you have your Bible or if you have your bulletin, you can read along with me. We're going to start in verse 35. <clears throat> On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this passage begins on that day when evening had come. And he said to them, let's go across to the other side. So on that day means the same day that Jesus had been teaching these parables. 
So he's probably tired, and my guess is he's wanting to get away from the crowds, and he's wanting a break. And when he says, go across to the other side, he means to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that where he was headed from what comes after this is the country of the Gerasenes. Um, We've got a picture of a map here. So if you look, uh, there's the Sea of Galilee up on the sort of northwestern side. You see Capernaum. And that's roughly where Jesus is when he's teaching. And you'll see at the, at the bottom right, it says Decapolis there. I'll tell you why in just a second. But Jesus was making what was roughly a five-mile journey probably to about where it says uh, Gergesa there. Do you see that? So that's, that's the trip that he's making. And the, the country of the Gerasenes was on the eastern side of the sea in what is modern-day Syria. And it was in an area called the Decapolis. Here's why that's significant. If you remember in the Old Testament, after the Israelites wandered through the desert for 40 years, Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land, and they crossed the Jordan River. So they crossed from east to west, the Jordan River, uh, south of the Sea of Galilee there. And... Uh, When Joshua got over there, they ran out seven nations of Canaanites. And it's rabbinic tradition that those seven nations settled in the Decapolis. So what that means is the people in the Decapolis weren't Jews, which is why they're raising pigs, which you'll see in a little bit. Um, But in rabbinic tradition, uh, the Jews saw these people as evil. And in fact, the Decapolis, they called it the home of Beelzebul, or home of the devil. So uh, it wasn't a popular idea to think, hey, let's go over to the country of the Gerasenes. But then on top of that, uh, crossing water wasn't a popular idea for Jews. The sea was only for necessity, basically for fishing, because in Hebrew imagery, the sea represented chaos and the forces of evil. It wasn't a place that you went for fun. So, for example, in Daniel 7, in one of Daniel's apocalyptic visions, uh, he sees four beasts. And where do they come? They come out of the sea. Uh, The sea is constantly throughout the Old Testament seen as a place that contained monsters and demons and evil and even like the grave, the place that you go when you die. It's kind of like at the bottom of the sea. So the sea, not a popular place and specifically the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake, and it is the lowest elevation freshwater lake in the entire world. And what that means is it's surrounded by mountains. And so because of the low elevation, wind comes from the mountains and it causes squalls out of nowhere. Still to this day, uh, there's a parking lot next to the Sea of Galilee today, and it has signs that says, basically, if you park here and you come back and your car is covered in water, that's not on us. So the Sea of Galilee was a treacherous place. So when Jesus said, let's go across to the other side, I imagine what his disciples heard was, let's go across the Sea of Evil Spirits to the home of the devil, and let's do it at nighttime. <laughs> then in verse 37, it says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So they started pretty freaked out already, and what they feared the most would happen is happening. The squall came, and the already 
The boat's almost full. And I want you to remember, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, four of Jesus' disciples, are fishermen who know the Sea of Galilee better than anyone would, and it's probably even one of their boats, probably Peter's. So they know what they're doing better than anyone, and they're probably yelling orders. They're telling people to throw things overboard, scoop water, do things with the sails. I don't know what they were doing. They knew better than anyone. But where's Jesus? Verse 38 says, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And so I had always pictured this like he's in a ship and he doesn't know what's going on because he's down below in a cabin or something like that. But archaeologists have found remains of a first century Galilean fishing boat, and I've got a photo of a replica of one for you. So you can tell, uh, no frills. So kind of on the right side there is a bench, and there was always a pillow on that bench, and that's probably what Jesus was sleeping on. So he wasn't downstairs. Uh, They weren't on a yacht, in other words. And it seems that the disciples are annoyed with Jesus because they say, do you not care? And I wonder, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like I'm dying over here, Jesus, and you're just asleep? Is it because you don't care or is it because you can't do anything? In Psalm 44, the psalmist says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? We don't know who wrote this psalm, but do you think that they're speaking from what they actually believed about God, that he's sleeping, that he's forgotten them? Because earlier in the same psalm, The author says, in God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. So this is someone who knows God intimately, who knows the truth about God. So when he writes, why are you asleep? It's not because that's what he believes is true, but it's because that's what it feels like. And I wonder if any of you know what that feels like. The disciples I doubt they actually thought that Jesus was going to save them because Jesus wasn't a sailor. In fact, when they cry out to him, they don't call him Lord. They call him teacher. And they don't need a lesson in the Torah right now. They need to stay alive. So Jesus probably isn't the man they're looking to for salvation. But when they cried out to Jesus, they still had no idea exactly who it was they were crying out to In verse 39, it says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And the Greek that this was written in, it's only two words. Jesus uttered two words. And I always try to imagine this scene because it's one of my favorite Jesus stories, but you got to think it's dark, it's nighttime, It's probably loud. It's chaotic. They can't get their footing. The wind's blowing rain in their face. There's there's waves coming in the boat. And then Jesus wakes up and says two words, and everything falls eerily silent. 
I always imagine that you could hear like the last sheet of rain clapping down on the water and then just silence and stillness. And I imagine what the disciples must have felt, what they must have been thinking. There's something about Jesus. There's something about his words. He said to them, why are you so afraid? And you have to wonder, is he asking them, why are you so afraid of the storm? Or is he asking them, why are you so afraid of me? Verse 41 says, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They ask this because they have no categories for a human being controlling the elements. In scripture, only God has that kind of power. The story has uh, some clear echoes of Jonah. You've got a guy asleep in a boat while there's a raging storm. And then the sailors cry out to God and the, and the storm is calmed. But the huge difference here is that in the story of Jonah, the sailors pray to God and then God calms the storm. But in this story, the sailors cry out to Jesus and Jesus doesn't pray. He doesn't get down on his knees. He utters two words and he calms the storm. He does what only God has the power to do. That's why the disciples are saying, who is this guy? The disciples were frustrated with Jesus because he was asleep. And they ask, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care? And the fact is, Jesus cared deeply, but he knew they were not actually perishing, even though they thought they were. And I want you to imagine what the disciples learned that night. Jesus had the power to prevent the storm from ever happening. They could have just had a calm, peaceful trip across the sea. But the Lord didn't spare them from the storm. Uh, from getting wet, from being afraid, from going into fight or flight, because he knew what they needed most. And it wasn't to stay dry or even to be safe. What they ultimately needed the most was to have a real encounter with God and to see the power of Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all of creation, the wind, the seas, the evil powers. He's Lord of all. But the good news of the gospel is not that when we put our faith in Christ, we don't have to contend with those things anymore. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says that though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The son of God himself learned obedience through what he suffered. So the promise isn't that if you follow Jesus, there are no more storms and you have a, an easy life. The promise is that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he's in the storm with you. He's in the boat with you and he is not asleep. We're promised victory, but we still have to go into the battle. And when we go into the battle, we meet Jesus in a way that we couldn't if we were just sitting comfortably at home. Let's look at what happened when Jesus got to the other side of the sea. Read with me uh, 
Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I want you again to try to picture this scene. Jesus has calmed the storm. We don't know what the rest of that trip was like, but I imagine it was pretty intense. In a five-mile journey, chances are when they got to the other side, it's still night. And when they reach the land on the other side, there are huge limestone rocks all around. And there are caves in the rocks that were used for tombs. So even in broad daylight, this would be kind of an eerie thing to see. And as soon as they set foot on land, they hear screaming and see the shape of a man emerging from the tombs and coming towards them. And this man represented everything that was evil and unclean to these Jews. For one thing, he was a Gentile, which made him unclean. But not just a Gentile, he was a Gentile who lived in the land of the devil, And he lived among the tombs, meaning he was constantly surrounded by death, which made him unclean. He lived in close proximity to a massive herd of pigs, which were unclean. And to top it all off, he's filled with unclean spirits. And in the gospels, this term unclean spirits, it's synonymous with demons. So this man is full of demons. He is the embodiment of evil. He's probably disheveled and dirty and bleeding, and the disciples see him running toward them. And my guess is they were getting ready for a fight. You know, Peter was. Seems like he was always ready to fight. But what happened instead? The man fell down before Jesus and begged for mercy. Remember, after Jesus calmed the storm, The disciples, who'd been with him for a while and seen him do some pretty crazy stuff, after they see him calm the storm, they say, who is this? But this man with an unclean spirit immediately called him Jesus, son of the most high God. He knew exactly who he was. And what happens next, I think, is one of the weirdest parts of the entire New Testament. Jesus asked the unclean spirit's name, and he says, Legion. And we learn that it's not just one spirit, but it's a whole bunch of spirits. 
And it's confusing because the pronouns go back and forth because the, the demon-possessed man, like one minute it's saying he and the next minute it's saying they because it's like, is this the guy talking or is this the demons talking? It's a weird thing to try to get your head around. But they beg Jesus not to send them out of the country, but instead to allow them to enter a herd of pigs, which is weird. And what's weirder is Jesus lets them. And you have to wonder why. Why would Jesus negotiate with demons, right? Why would he grant them anything? And I think there is probably more than just one simple answer to this because God's always working on multiple levels. Everything he does, there's something that we can learn from it. There's symbolism in it. There are things that it teaches us about God. There's things that it teaches us about our own hearts. So there's different ways that we can see this, but I want you to notice, as soon as the demons entered the herd of pigs, they rushed into the sea and drowned themselves. If you grew up in church, you've heard this story, but I don't want you to be immune to how weird it is. Um, The man who had been tormented by these demons for what must have been a very long time was now in his right mind. He was well. And if the people of the town had just encountered this man afterward and there had not been any of the whole 2,000 pigs thing, imagine the stories that they could have convinced themselves of. That's not the demon-possessed guy. It just looks like him. Or maybe, um, well, he finally started eating right and he got on his meds and he just needed to get healthy. and He's better now. Or... He was faking it. I knew it all along. This guy was just looking for a free handout. But what Jesus did when 2,000 pigs in lockstep marched to the sea to drown themselves, he gave them something that they couldn't ignore or dismiss. And I don't know about you, the most pigs I've ever seen together at one time is probably like 30 So it's overwhelming just to imagine seeing 2,000 pigs, let alone to see 2,000 pigs plunge themselves into the sea. And consider what pigs represent to the Jews. They were a huge symbol of uncleanliness. So you wouldn't have found herds of pigs on the other side of the sea. But by plunging this herd of pigs into the sea, you could say that Jesus was symbolically making this place clean making the Decapolis clean. Because this is the first time that we know that Jesus went to Gentiles. So it's the spread of the kingdom of God beyond Israel, and it begins with a grand gesture. So think about it. The Jews fear water as a symbol of demonic forces, and Jesus has just basically performed an exorcism on the Sea of Galilee and shown the demonic forces who's boss. He's shown himself king over the natural realm. And then he comes here and he shows himself to be king over the supernatural realm. And he takes a symbolic animal that represents uncleanliness, uncleanliness that's literally filled with demons and plunges it into the very sea that they're afraid of. You see what's going on here? It's like layers upon layers of symbolism, and it doesn't stop there. The unclean spirits say to Jesus, my name is Legion. 
And a legion was a Roman battle unit that consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. There wasn't anyone in the Roman Empire who wouldn't have known what a legion was, especially Jesus' disciples who were Jews oppressed by Rome. I don't know if this is significant or not, but, but take this for what it is. The Roman 10th Legion was based in Syria, basically right where they are. And the insignia on its seals and standards was a boar. So it could be that Jesus symbolically is saying, I'm more powerful than the elements. I'm more powerful than the demons. And I'm more powerful than the Roman legions that you fear. And he's symbolically wiping them into the sea. But regardless of exactly why Jesus did this, I just want you to consider how much changed for the disciples in 24 hours. 24 hours before, before they had heard the parable of the sower, before they had seen Jesus calm the sea and cast a legion of demons out of a man, what did they fear? They feared the sea. They feared the waves. They feared the wind. They feared demonic forces. They feared the Roman war machine. But 24 hours later, what did they fear? They feared the only one to be feared, the Lord of all creation. And see, the disciples expected too little of Jesus because all they really wanted was to keep their boat from filling up with water. They just wanted to survive. But Jesus did far more than secure their boat. Mark gives us more backstory on the man with the unclean spirits than any other person that Jesus ever healed. And he tells us that no one had the strength to subdue him. But Jesus didn't come to subdue him. Jesus came to set him free. And as, as I've been reading and studying, I've thought maybe, maybe our prayers are too small. This has been a really heavy week for my family and I, uh, both Brandy's side and my side of the family have just had some hard issues to contend with. And um, it's been a heavy week for many here at Orangewood and our Orangewood family as well. And in God's wisdom, he hasn't spared us from the storm, but I know that he's in the boat with us and I know that he's not asleep. But as I look at some of the situations I've been dealing with in my own life, I realize I've prayed for very practical solutions. So it's almost like I've thought, well, maybe if I throw some stuff overboard and I scoop really hard, scoop as fast as I can, Lord, bless my scooping. But I have found that my scooping is futility. <clears throat> And I've literally said out loud to Brandy and a few of my friends, it's going to take a miracle. And I think that's where a lot of us are this morning when it comes to hearts that are broken, sickness and death and addiction and deep wounds in the heart, deep wounds in relationships, things that no amount of money are going to fix. Um, 
we're called to keep moving forward, to keep trying, to keep contending. So I don't want you to hear me say that we're not supposed to, but maybe our prayers are too small because we don't just need the strength to subdue our problems. We need a savior who can set us free. And as you look at your own life and the lives of those you love, I want to ask you, what's the biggest prayer that you dare to ask for? What's the thing that you hardly dare to even hope for? There's an epilogue to our story, and we're going to look at it briefly. It comes in verses 14 through 20. It says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So a man who was created in the image of God had come to be seen as less than human, to be seen as just an outcast and a nuisance and something to be subdued. But he encountered the king of all creation who healed him and set him free and his life would never be the same. But the routine of the people in the city and the country had been unsettled because Jesus threatened their normal. He threatened their economy. He threatened their religious beliefs. And so they asked him to leave. Jesus the same as he did with the Gerasenes, he threatens our sense of normal. He threatens our beliefs. He threatens our worldview. He threatens the way we make a living. And so I ask, what will you do with him? The man who'd just been delivered from the legion of demons asked if he could go with Jesus. And Jesus, the same Jesus who said yes to the request of the demons, the same Jesus who kindly complied when the Gerasenes asked him to leave, that same Jesus said no to this man who wanted to go with him. Instead, he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so this man, this outcast, this demoniac became the first missionary to the Gentiles. He probably didn't know scripture. He probably had not trained in rhetoric. He definitely had not gone to seminary. He simply went and told how much the Lord had done for him. So what will you do with Jesus today? If you've seen his power, will you believe in him and let him change you? And if you know him, if you've been changed by him, will you go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you? As we close, I want to give you just a moment to silently be with the Lord Jesus Christ, to consider him 
And I, I ask you, and I'm going to do this too, to look your fears and your anxieties and all the things that seem like they're crashing in around you, to look those in the eye and realize that there's one who's greater than both the natural and the supernatural realm. And he knows you and he loves you and he's for you. And I want to ask you to dare to ask him for a miracle. Dare to ask him for something bigger than you can imagine. So I'm going to give you just a moment to pray silently and then I'll close us. Lord, there are people in this room, there are loved ones of people in this room who desperately need for the chains to be broken, who desperately need for the storm to be calmed. And we know, Lord, that you are able, you alone, You don't promise that you will do everything that we want, the way we want, and the timing that we want. But you do invite us to ask. And so, Lord, we ask you to bring healing and redemption and beauty in places that no one would think it could be cultivated. Lord, show yourself to be powerful in our own hearts, in our own lives. And give us faith to believe that the spirit of the Jesus who calmed the storm and the mind of the Christ who had command over the natural and the supernatural, that we have those things because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because of anything that we've done or ever could do, but because he lived a perfect life and died a horrible death on our behalf. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that the same power that rose Christ from the grave would be at work in each of our hearts and each of our lives today. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.